0: Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. SFL helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and off boarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in
1: one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow.
0: So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply
1: consumer demand will accelerate the need for security, privacy, and regulation. It's like zero knowledge, like ZK, where you can prove something is true without revealing all information. And of course, security infrastructure, which is I think is very interesting and important at this current moment, even before the next bull market. For example, one of the companies we invested into Ledger, a digital asset a hardware wallet. You basically have an app store interface where you can trade, you can stake. We see a lot of uh, adoption of crypto in not just the retail space because of the increased awareness in the media, new DeFi applications coming up but also in the adoption of enterprise space, right? So a lot of these enterprises will be thinking to themselves, okay, in my treasury, not just do I need to hold USD and other currencies, maybe I need to also hold Bitcoin or something else, DBS Bank. They're now holding up some of this sandbox land. Where do they hold it? They can't hold it just in a wallet and then they throw it into some cabinet somewhere. They need to have the right security hardware. So we believe this will accelerate the adoption of applications like Ledger, which is like a hardware wallet for both retail and enterprise. So we believe that the HO saying of sell shovels during
0: a go rush is still very, very true. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we are at the near till end of 2023 with breaking news from the OpenAI debacle happening in Silicon Valley. CZ from Binance resigning as CEO with Richard Ting, the new CEO taking over. With me today, Kelly Chu, founding partner from True Global Ventures to discuss where AI and crypto will be heading in 2024. So Kelly, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much, uh, Bernard. Um, thank you for
1: getting me on again. I still remember our last interview in January. And now it's about 10, 11 months
0: uh, on. Yeah, so much have happened, right? You were here to talk about the five mega trends. But just before we get into the main subject of the day, it is always important to ask you, what have you been up to? Well, we've been we've been extremely busy. We've been helping a lot of our portfolios,
1: our current portfolios as well as our this pipeline of portfolios to leverage on what we call the five mega trends, which we will talk about, I guess, today, later on in, in this uh, show. Um, and one of them is, I mean, everyone knows it's the generative AI trend. Uh, but you know, how do we actually navigate this area because it's so hot? everyone's looking at this this area, right? And then how do we actually look at it from a you know regulatory per- perspective? How do we look at it from a metaverse? How do we look at, at
0: security and digital assets? These are all things in the in the mega trends that we are looking at and helping these uh, portfolios. So there is a very famous quote you know, nothing happens and nothing happens and then everything happens at once. So before we start because this morning breaking news came on, CZ who has just basically stepped down as CEO from Binance. And he's definitely one of the titans in the crypto space. And of course, taking over him will be Richard Ting. Very happy, fellow Singaporean. So what are your quick thoughts? Just without commenting too much, I know because things are still evolving as it is. As Absolutely. Well.
1: Yeah, so I don't want to comment too much on, on CZ. I think he has, he has led the company to uh, great heights already. So you know, kudos to him. Uh, I think Richard Ting is a very interesting um, you know, leader. In this case because of his background in Singapore uh, you know, as a regulator before and now he's leading the charge for, for Binance. So I, I really think that
0: there will be good things coming out for, for Binance very soon. Mm. As a fellow Singaporean, I'm going to wish him well and of course nowadays Singaporean CEOs seems to be the face of legitimacy. Just think of Chu Sozhi who is now the CEO of TikTok and now Richard Ting who's helming Binance. So I think this has come a long way right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Absolutely, Singapore is a very small country with very little people, but you know, we are making an impact in that way. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go back a bit to the weekend. So it has been a whirlwind weekend. I think let's start with the hottest topic, and it is still probably ongoing. I think they are still having negotiations. What are your thoughts on what happened to Sam Altman and OpenAI? Absolutely, that has been you know blowing up my my social media and you know in in X
1: as well as in LinkedIn. I think we might find out the the truth very soon because I think it's extremely weird, right? For for Sam to be building this uh, board and then getting the board to eventually, you know, oust him out, uh, and then obviously his other co founder had, uh, had to quit. But I think one of his uh, co founder, earlier right, um, had tweeted, right. He said that he deeply regretted his participation in the board's actions, right, and he didn't never in, intended to harm OpenAI. Uh, and basically, it meant that, you know, he had probably you know joined the other three board members because they were. Total six board members, right? Including Sam. So he was four out of out of the six that essentially uh you know ousted Sam out. So I think that was that was extremely weird, but uh, you know, you never know what the truth is until you know a couple of weeks from now. But I think one of the the smartest person that actually is benefiting from this is uh you know Mr. N- Nadella from uh uh Microsoft, right? Uh basically uh in this case, his maneuvering is it can be seen to be very strewed, right? Because if uh you know Miss, uh, Sam actually returns to um, you know returns to OpenAI. Then Microsoft, being you know OpenAI's biggest investor, has then you know shown that he has supported him right in the time of crisis, and this has obviously will improve their corporate relationship. But if you know Sam actually and his friends do join Microsoft, then you know, uh you know uh this Mr. D- Nadella will actually be look even smarter because he has brought in the best talents right and technology into the world into his uh you know his corporate uh in his into Microsoft. And maybe from the second most valuable company, they become they might become
0: the most valuable company in the world. Who knows? And of course, I would probably say that Sachin Adela is probably the best corporate but not founding CEO in this era. I think that was a very, very brilliant chess move. I mean, it basically ensures that no matter whether Sam goes back to OpenAI or comes over to Microsoft, Microsoft wins in the entire process and also locked out the other major competitors like Google, Entropy, AWS, Databricks, et cetera, et cetera, who are all currently in this big AI race. It's something that they are still negotiating. Probably by the time this podcast drops, we will probably have some conclusion. The board is really pretty amateur because they only let Microsoft know, I think, only one minute before the announcement dropped. And from just reading what was happening with the interim CEOs that's just changed over twice, it is really sad that things have gone out this way for the most valuable company. And if the four remaining three, three board members don't realise, they just flush a ninety billion dollar worth company down to the toilet. If if this impasse doesn't resolve itself, but I want to now move back because I think while all the open AI drama is going, and let's dial back to the open AI developer event. How did the recent open AI developer day Influence your views and strategies when it comes to investing in generative AI and new large language models?
1: Yeah, great question. I, I think two of the announcements did stand out for me. One is definitely that they, they're now allowing users to build their own GPTs, right? So one of the key things is that um they, they said that they allow users to build their own bots, uh, you know, just to just through prompts without needing to do, do know any coding and this obviously allows you know not just consumers but enterprise customers to make internal only gpt built on top of their company's knowledge base right so they can connect the databases they can connect you know any of the institutional memory uh and and data that they have and that basically will be a game changer because number one you know this are you know, data is everything for ai right especially for generative ai so i think this is definitely one of the things that stood out for me the second thing is is definitely the new gpt store uh, because that that basically means that, you know, OpenAI is, is going towards the, uh, you know, we are not just one solution company. We are basically the marketplace. We are definitely the store to come uh, into. And then basically, you know, besides, you know, the verified builders, they're basically saying that, you know, whoever has popular GPT models will pay them. Uh, basically, it's going down the route of what Apple did, right? Previously with the, the Apple Play Store, uh, sorry, the Apple App Store. So, so I think these two things stood out. But I think in terms of for investments uh, perspective, um, you know for true global ventures, we, we don't think that investing in LLMs is actually a good strategy at this moment because it requires billions of dollars to actually you know, invest into, into this area. and you never know right? you know every time you wake up in the morning, the next LLM might have leapfrogged you right <laughs> because the, because of the nature of this you know highly competitive space, uh, open source models, you know models that come out of uh, you know, uh, of other countries in, in China or in other places where they have a lot of data. Um, so we think that this is actually from an investment perspective is is, is not great. Um, of course, um, you know a lot of these models are not as great as, as ChatGPT. But you never know because you know, like for example, uh, Meta when they when they open source their Llama two, they went a different route, right? And they knew that the open source model may be the the way to do it. So I think this is something like you know like the Apple iOS and Android uh, Google Android war where both can exist and can can thrive. Um, and for us, we would rather invest into the applications and solution to solve a problem or multiple problems in a vertical because we think that's where the true value lies. Uh, you know, and, and we can see the multiples of invest on uh, our return on investments there.
0: Mm, I totally agree with you with that point of view. And even though I've done some analysis, if I were to ever try to build an ASEAN LLM, I think the numbers are just too big. And I don't think the VCs are able to afford this. So maybe coming back to the generative AI question, could you walk us through the chronology of generative AI's rise and its current state in a technology landscape? What are the startups that caught your attention? I guess maybe the question you already said that you don't invest in the foundation models, right? Where do you think, say, the APIs that connect the foundation models to the applications and also the applications itself in the generative AI space? Sure. So so the chronology of, of generative AI, I mean, depends
1: on, on who wrote the, in this case, the chronology. But I think if you look at it from a quarter by quarter basis, I think in quarter one of 2023, earlier this year, right? I think mostly they were very experimental, you know, a lot of the executives that were surveyed during the time saying, you know, they were trying certain things out, uh, but it was not, you know, conclusive because they, they don't know how to actually implement it, you know, concerns of, you know, security of the, their own data were there. So I think that all these were, were out there in, in quarter one um, and, you know, IBM, I think also conducted a survey during the time in quarter one, is it, and they found that 45% of these cloud leaders, um, you know, surveyed, they expressed concerns, right, in all these areas of cybersecurity, privacy, confidentiality. So there were a lot of, uh, I would say, Unknowns at the time and a lot of concerns. And then in quarter two, I think that that when you know a little bit of, of things changed, McKinsey uh, Global Survey confirmed of the explosive growth of these tools. So I think not just in terms of the foundational model, but also in a lot of the applications that came out. Uh, and of course, one third of these survey responders re- responded that their organi- organizations are using something right, in this area. Of course, they didn't reveal too much because it was competitive. Some said, of course, like uh, you know, cons- customer service, some say, you know, things like helping their, their staff write better. Uh, or you know basically look at data faster, right? So these are areas that that uh, you know came out. and of course there was there was an MIT re- technology review that showed that this accelerating adoption was actually happening across Asia, not just in terms of you know US and and Europe. So that was in quarter two. And then quarter three, I think th- this led to more acceleration, right So um, but a lot of the companies that were smaller, they were struggling with the rise of this uh, generative AI. So I remember, you know, a couple of uh, family officers, a couple of uh, other peer venture capitalists who, who spoke to us. We were we were chatting and we we're talking about how to actually implement some of this, uh, you know, generative AI because they were they were wondering, right? Because everyone, including their bosses, their bosses' bosses, and basically the board, is asking the same question: like, how do we do this? Because everyone they, they see in the, in the news is actually adopting this. So you know, Deloitte AI Institute also at the time unveiled a, a new report, right? Gen- it's talking about generative AI use cases across six major industry verticals. So there was one of the first few, uh, you know, reports that came out that basically said, you know, how do you actually use it rather than you know just using, you know, ChatGPT to to do your homework faster or to answer questions. And then of course our most exciting, which is Q4 this uh, this quarter itself, we see a lot of competitive news coming out, right? Google announcing their major expansion in the generative AI search. Making it available in 120 countries, Thomson Reuters, like for example, unveiled their generative AI strategy to transform the future of professionals. Qualcomm itself, from a hardware perspective, not just you know Nvidia, right, announced their their Snapdragon Gen three, which is you know indicating maybe we don't know yet 100 that we will have maybe LM models running on, on phones in 2024, right. So these are all trends that we see throughout the year itself. But I think what some of the companies that that caught our eye, I mean, one of one of them specifically, I can share. Uh, it's a startup that basically is into online education. This is for kids, right? K to uh, K- 12. And why they're interesting to us is because they have the largest corpus of educated educators-created content for the past eight to nine years. So from that perspective, you know, they are they are superior because there's no other you know, data set like this, they're largest probably in the world. And they're able to use this data to train their LM. And by training their LLMs or their large language models, they're now able to generate new content for both you know, teachers, educators, as well as, as as parents. So you can say things like, oh, my kid loves math, right? Uh, but he also likes Lego. And this can generate in real time some sort of math uh, training program curriculum with Lego. And you can you can translate this into you know 10, 20, 30 different languages in almost in an instant. So these are some of the uh, examples of generative AI where it's verticalized, it's disrupting uh, you know
0: a space that's very traditional, and we like this kind of companies. I basically dive in the dialogue between the AI and the crypto space myself, and I actually find really some similarities to me, and LLM is no different from an L1 blockchain. So I think my question to you then is, what type of business models are going to be proving to be successful in the generative AI space, and how True Global Ventures is going to engage with these models when it comes to evaluation of the startups?
1: I, I think um, this area of, um, you know, generative AI space is, is always evolving. And as I mentioned previously, we, we don't want to be investing in the LMs itself. Um, We think that, you know, just like, just like in blockchain, right? Investing in layer ones can be a huge risk because you don't know which layer one will, will do better than the other, right? Everyone is claiming to be like the Ethereum killer, right? Or the Bitcoin killer. And, and you never know which one is going to be the, the next one. I think uh, you know, as as high risk, you get high re- uh, rewards, obviously. But you know, there is a there is a you know a huge uh, you know kind of unfair advantage that, that Ethereum has because they have the most developers, they have the most apps, they're the most total value locked, right? Basically, money that's that's locked into the into the chain itself. So they have a really really strong network effect. That's extremely hard to break, right? So similarly, we think the same that is happening now for Open AI and some of the other top LLMs. So they will be able to, you know, pull together all the best apps or the best applicate, uh, you know, other uh, forms of data to be basically, basically train their their models as well as as well as to create new apps on top of that. So we think, uh, as we mentioned, the verticalized um, parts of of different segments uh, will be actually disrupted using generative AI. So uh, you know, we are happy to talk about some of them, uh, you know, in the next couple of questions. Um, but basically these verticals are the ones that will be affected the most and therefore they'll be the most value created, right? And we don't think actually the business models will fundamentally change, right? They won't change because uh, fundamentally how they make money is either through you know, um, monetization of B2B SaaS, uh, you know, of infrastructure where you lease out the infrastructure. So these are the areas that we really, really want to uh, invest into.
0: So where is true global ventures at when it comes to investing in AI startups? Do we invest in the category?
1: Yeah, so so we traditionally we actually started investing in uh, AI companies in 2011. So this is not our first foray into into AI AI investments. Uh, myself, you know, uh, I think you know, back in 2008, I started a uh, AI ML company which basically looked at you know the social media and, and crawled the social media to understand the sentiments of what people were saying on brands, on policies, and different areas. So from that experience as well as from the investment perspective, we've been investing in this in this space. For some time now of course now with the acceleration of uh, AI awareness due to generative AI these are uh, areas that we really really want to look at so like for example uh, we have you know legal AI where we use AI to basically look at contracts and basically make it more efficient to see whether you know the lawyers are, need to basically look at you know the, the the legal contracts or not so it helps them reduce costs reduce time basically to save them money right and, and, and resources the second part is of course we, we just talked about education AI which is basically how do we actually use AI to, to disrupt education? How do we help basically uh, educators generate more content very quickly as relevant to the students that they have. And then another area is revenue AI, basically using uh, AI to help um, you know corporates to, to do better revenue. So basically signals, basically what are people saying online that could signal your salespeople to basically close better, right? So that's was what we call revenue AI and then things like code-related AI. So basically, on your development front, how do you uh, enable your, your programmers who are maybe not as experienced as a CTO or maybe a, a very uh, experienced programmer, how do you get them to a point where they become much better at, at coding, right? So basically, uh, you know, code reduction, code optimization, uh, things that basically make them even more efficient uh, in coding itself. So we think all these have a material impact on productivity and also not just productivity, but...
0: It also helps to um, some of these companies to have more revenue streams. Now that we have done a lot on the generative AI side, and I think I see where your your point of view is going. Are you gonna think about also looking at anything within the enterprise AI space as well? For sure. Okay, I I think I think the and the I mean for us as
1: as a fund, we we mostly invest into B two B right, so so corporate as well as um, uh, B, sometimes B two B to C, but mostly B two B. So definitely, we think that, that enterprise AI is is a space that is very interesting to us. Okay,
0: I will definitely come to you. Of course, I'm joking, <laughs> but we will talk further on that. Um, I guess let's go back to the start of the year. You came onto the show and you talk about the five, uh, Web three or crypto mega trends. I think it's a good time to actually review what worked and what didn't. Uh, this is a very typical way of thinking about reflecting on this whole year. So. Which one worked out and which one didn't? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So so I think, uh, you know, 2018,
1: just for everyone's viewer, who, viewers who uh, who didn't hear the last you know interview, every five years, we actually talk about new megatrends. So 2018, we talk about uh, five megatrends that, uh, you know, we, we communicated to the market. Uh, one of them we got extremely right, which was uh, Metaverse. And uh, that basically gave us, you know, a huge return for our last one. Um, and, and you know, in 2023, early Gen- January 2023, we actually communicated another five megatrends, right? So the two, I would say, I'll lump the two of them together, which is centralization is dead, decentralization is more than back, as well as consumer demand will accelerate the need for security, privacy and regulation. That in it itself is actually accelerating faster than, you know, what we expected. We expected this to be maybe two, three, five years out, right? But we see the trend now happening, obviously gaining momentum due to the SEC uh you know uh, issues with the bitcoin etf especially the, the the spot etf we think this this is a, actually a very interesting position to be in because uh, you know this is basically where a lot of legal challenges has been you know in, in the past but now we we see that if this is actually approved um then obviously a lot of the institutional money will come in and you've seen like, like for example traditional finance uh getting a lot larger share in the bitcoin market right because the cme Uh, Group's uh, rise in the Bitcoin future trading has already seen that it's been larger than a lot of the other traditional Web3 uh, markets out there. And because of this anticipation of this spot uh, Bitcoin ETFs, we see a lot of this impact on the the demand and the price. And in the last couple of weeks, you know, price has been going up. You know, you never know. You can never project these kind of things. It might go up or down. But I think there's a lot of anticipation that this uh, spot Bitcoin ETF in the US will be approved, right? And this is not the, I mean, to be clear, this is not the only spot Bitcoin ETF right? because there are others that were already approved outside of the US. But why the US is so important is because it's a key market, right? Everyone sees it as one of the leaders of this space. So with that uh, approval, then we think that, you know, this, this demand will go up. And of course, you know, Bitcoin halving in 2024, April 2024, we think we'll have a positive driver on this, uh, you know, the price of Bitcoin itself. So we think that this trend will, will continue to, to accelerate, right? And we think that Bitcoin is... The you know the 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 key or the fundamental use case for decentralization is in for us, uh, and of course security privacy regulation will happen, and we we'll, we can talk about a little bit more about that in in the next few, uh, you know segments of this interview. Thank you, and then the second uh or the third trend I would say right because the first two were, were trend one and two is basically uh you know decentralized AI in Web three getting real user traction right finally right this was one of the mega trends that we got wrong in twenty in twenty eighteen. We, we talked about, you know, how uh, AI and, and Web3 uh, and decentralization will, will happen, but we got it wrong during the time. But now we really feel that this is, is coming, right? Because we think that the internet is you know not owned by anyone when it first started, right? It should be a top priority today to actually regulate AI development you know, in any country, starting with the US. Uh, you know, we think that, you know, the US is probably nine months ahead of China as well as even more ahead of the rest of the world. But with ChatGPT's success, right, this shows that there's actually u- real user traction in both consumer as well as enterprise, right? And also in this Web3 space because of, of blockchain coming in and decentralizing a lot of these uh, functions. So we think that there's a lot of cost savings that can that can happen by, you know, by these co- corporates. So some stats just to, to share uh, with everyone. A quarter of these companies, right, including SMEs, have saved roughly about 50 to seventy thousand US dollars using ChatGPT, right, based on the research that was done. Uh, so this is a huge impact for a lot of these SMEs and, and corporates, not only in the non-tech space, but also a lot in the Web3 space. Uh, for example, one of our portfolio companies, animoka Brands, right, they're using uh, you know, uh this um, AI to basically generate you know, new new items, new virtual items. So this actually helps them reduce production time by 80% and also helps them increase their revenues because they now have uh, you know a whole catalog of digital assets, right? And with the events that are happening right uh, interesting events that are happening now or uh, un- unfortunate events happening now in open AI we, 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 th- we see that leadership changes highlights a, a, you know a challenge of aligning research and product development right so the need for decentralization of regulated AI is actually even more pressing now right because of this of this, of, the, of the potential societal impacts of AI so we, if we don't decentralize AI enough, a lot of more problems like this will, will actually occur and definitely last but not least um you know is the open metaverse crossing the chasm to become mainstream right governments have been pushing uh you know these areas of promoting investments in, into metaverse ecosystem we can see it in south korea japan even saudi arabia right and the blend of real world as well as virtual worlds uh is reminiscence of the dot com era right where it becomes more prevalent and also uh you know there are a lot of strategic investments like one example is neom uh starting this thing called the neom investment fund nif which invested in one of our portfolios and emojo brands. This is paving the way, we believe, in the development of smart cities and integrating both physical and digital experiences. So I would say these are the three, four uh, you know trends that are that are
0: accelerating now, even faster than sometimes uh, you know we we have expected. Mm, the Bitcoin ETFs, there's gonna be 13 of them running. I think probably starting uh, Q1 2024 20, is something really we have to watch. And of course, uh Bitcoin halving seems to be driving every crypto bull run. So it seems to be the only thing that matters as such. I think with crypto and Web3 evolving so quickly, and of course, people are so um jaded after the FTX debacle. So now the question is, there are definitely developments. Even myself, I've been looking at a lot of things in the new ERC-6551, real world monetization. I think, can you highlight some of the more exciting developments that you've seen recently? I know you you took a look on the real world asset monetization side, as such.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so real world assets RWA tokenization, I think, has you know emerged as one of the strongest use case of blockchain, uh, on a global scale. Now, um, you know, I, I you know I've come across, I think at least tens, if not, um, you know, close to hundreds of of companies that were saying that they can tokenize, you know, everything from bonds to to you know property, and we, we think that this is actually very interesting because if it. it it holds the promise of bringing greater efficiency and security to financial markets, right? Especially in this digital age. I think one of the areas um, you know, that we look at is basically, the, or areas that we've seen, is actually the push push for risk free real world yields, right? Basically shifting from industry focus from tokenization, like, for example, T bills, real estate, precious metals, gems, fine art. And these are areas where you know, we see a lot of tokenization um, you know, happening one example another example is you know metric spots uh tokenized short term treasury bonds right we call it the stbt uh and mm-hmm. this is basically where they tokenize the the treasury bills um basically they got a you know obviously very positive response you know the ms i think more than 123 million in over 5 months uh you know these are, are areas where you know using blockchain technology you create efficiency you create liquidity from, from something that is uh you know in a traditional Financial market into this whole blockchain area, um, and and the last but definitely not least is one of the areas that you know we we we've been very keen on, and we're looking at is really the tokenization of voluntary carbon credits. So this is our areas where you know people talk about you know how do we have, uh you know how do we encourage users or or retail users to go greener, right? And one of these areas is how do you t- tokenize uh, voluntary carbon credits? How do you reward users for better behavior? in uh, you know green sustainability uh you know kind of lifestyles and how do you actually then use that as a as a asset that you can use to trade or to you know to or uh, to swap to you know other assets or even money. So we think these are mm. the areas that we, we see in RWA. Mm.
0: I, I think the common credits question, I've actually looked at it in the last cycle and it didn't come up with anything satisfactory even in the US side. And the other aspect of what is coming, one of the most interesting things is in the NFT space. Can you briefly explain the concept of ERC six five five one and programmable NFTs? They call it. How are they different from the traditional NFTs that people are most familiar with, or some people call it overpriced JPEGs?
1: <laughs> yes. So so on top of being overpriced JPEGs, I think I think this uh, ERC six five five one. Uh, enables a couple of things, right? It solves a couple of problems, right? I think one of the biggest problems with NFTs is that, you know, in in the overpriced JPEGs, you have a link, right? And this link basically links to some JPEG at some server or database somewhere else. So the moment someone removes that image, your NFT sort of disappears, right? Because you don't have the image anymore. So in order to solve this problem, I think the ERC standard came out of 6551. Instead of managing huge databases and centralized servers to render these NFTs or the images, you basically have an on-chain way to seamlessly store this, this information and also to make it programmable in a way that you can evolve. I can give you, you know, four examples here. One of them is identity. So every NFT can then now own its own identity. And when you when you do that, you can actually interact with apps. So you don't have to just use your own you Web3 know, wallet or your MetaMask to basically interact with D uh, apps. You can actually use NFTs to interact with it. So this, this will be great for things like games, right? Um and and also digital identity right, especially in DeFi and in other areas. The second thing is of course, um, you know, one one example is digital outfits and items, right? So like projects like CloneX and Doodles are using this this uh, ERC six five five one to allow the users to equip NFTs with digital outfits and and items because it's programmable, it's evolvable. So you know you can quickly, uh, use that as a way to to you know to dress up your 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 NFTs. Um, and of course, token earning and airdrop ad- ad- models, right? So like projects like BAYC, Cool Cats, they're using this this um, you know new standard to implement token earning and airdrop ad- models. So this is you know fairly fairly new, and of course, revolutionising you know the games, right? The Web three games in this case, because then you allow your avatars to own you know in game collectibles and also cryptocurrencies. So not just uh, you know the user owning cryptocurrencies, but the character itself can own cryptocurrencies itself. And this, you know, obviously enhances the gaming experience uh, and and will create unique interactions. So imagine like, you know, this character that I really want to sell has 10,000, you know, Ethereum with it, right? How much more would it be worth, you know, if you want to sell this off, you know, in the marketplace?
0: From true global ventures perspectives, then what would be the new Web3 technologies or crypto technologies and applications that we should be paying attention now?
1: Yeah, great question. I think one of this this leads back to one of our mega trends, right? Consumer demand will accelerate the need for security, privacy, and regulation. So we see supporting technologies like zero knowledge, right? Like ZK, right, where, where you can prove something is true without revealing all information, and of course, security infrastructure, which is I think is very interesting and important at this current moment, even before the next bull market. For example, one of the companies we invested into Ledger, a digital asset a hardware wallet, together with an app store like application called. Ledger Live. So when you plug in, you know, the wallet or you connect the wallet, you basically have an app store interface where you can trade, you can stake, you can do different things with your crypto. And we believe this is actually very interesting because we see a lot of uh, adoption of crypto in not just the retail space because of the increased awareness in the media, new DeFi applications coming up, but also in the adoption of enterprise space, right? Because, you know, thanks to Bitcoin in the spot, Bitcoin ETF, Uh, trend. So a lot of these enterprises will be thinking to themselves, okay, in my treasury, not just do I need to hold USD and other currencies, maybe I need to also hold Bitcoin or something else that forms my digital asset. DBS Bank, they're now holding up some of this sandbox land. But where do they hold it? They can't hold it just in a wallet, and then they destroy it into some cabinet somewhere. They need to have the right security hardware. So we believe this will accelerate the adoption of of this kind of applications like ledger, which is like a hardware wallet for both retail and enterprise. So we believe that the HO saying of sell shovels during a gold rush is still very very
0: true. So that's where, uh, you know, we we are we are looking at. Mm. And the most important tenant in crypto, not your keys, not your crypto. I'm also a happy ledger user. So I think okay. that that is becoming very, very important. And I actually got my first ledger, I think, since uh, just before the last bull market started, I think somewhere around 2020, when the assets is actually becoming that I will need to start having one. Let me go back to the metaverse because we talk about generative AI and we talk about Crypto Web 3. How do you see specifically AI? I think what they call non-player characters or NPCs, because I'm a advanced Dungeons and Dragons player many, many years ago. So this is not this is something I really look forward to. How did this enhancing the user experience within the metaverse? I think that, that world is coming. Or even the West World too. Absolutely. I don't know about West World,
1: but maybe, maybe West World might happen robotic robots might take over us. Uh, but I, I think there has been some significant improvements in this area, right? Uh, one of our portfolios, like the Sandbox, right, which is the leading one of the leading or the leading Open Metaverse uh, project out there. Uh, basically, they, they've used tools like generation of, of voice. So text to speech, right? When you type in something, you can generate natural sounding voices. You can tweak the, you know, the tone, the pitch and everything. Uh, you know, generation of background story and mood of the NPC. So you can literally say, you know, this... Character, you know, you know, comes from a very, uh, you know, poor family, and basically he has gone through a lot of hardships, whatever, right? And then the way he responds to you will will come from that perspective, right? And then this is generated from a from a interaction with the you know the, the player's perspective, and then of course generation of of virtual clothes, virtual items, uh, you know, things. I think as I mentioned just now, Animoca is looking at things uh of that nature to basically reduce the cost of production as well as to improve sales. Because now you can generate thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of virtual items very, very quickly, right? Because you don't have to have just one artist trying to create all these items. So not only is it reducing costs, but it's also improving uh, potentially the revenue, right? Because you have now more items to sell. And then from an indirect way, right? Uh, we've seen generation of virtual worlds from text props, right? So they fit, you know, NPC types. Like you can say, I want a Western, you know, background. And then all the NPCs become, you know, more some of the Wild West kind of, of characters. Or you say, I want to have more forest type of backgrounds. So and you have more, you know, animals or forest animals. And then the other one is generation of music or even theme songs. So, you know, they fit the NPC types, right? So if you can say this is a, you know, a cutesy, uh, you know, kind of, of uh, world. And then basically the song will be more, you know, cutesy and, and more, uh, fun, right, compared to maybe a dark, uh, you know, background kind of uh, of world. So I think there's both direct and indirect ways of, of how AI can affect these NPCs and the metaverse.
0: course. Mm. When we talk about metaverse and gaming crypto, I think recently there was the very significant uh, the Saudi Arabian government NEOMS project and Animoca brands, uh, just as well when I was in Airbus, the Neon project is, is a very, very big initiative even for the manufacturing of airplanes as such and drones as well, where we were thinking about how to future landscape the entire place. So can you discuss the significance of the recent Saudis government's investment into Animoca brands and also their potential impact to the metaverse? Sure. As part of this strategic relationship, Animoca brands will work with Neon right on building
1: Web three enterprise service capabilities with global commercial applicability, right? So they're building in Middle East in Saudi Arabia, and basically trialing it there, and then basically seeing how we, they can bring it to the world, right? And these are you know deployed in, to support you know their their advancements in the Riyadh and as well as the Neom region. So things like establishing a, a hub right within in Neom itself to nurture local web three ecosystem, basically training. You know the the locals there and as well as the people the talent that comes to that area on how to actually use some of these web3 technologies i think um this means from from an animoka perspective uh, market access obviously to saudi arabia as well as the markets around it so that's great for animoka but from a neom perspective right the the question is how can this actually tie back to their uh, you know the saudi's vision of 2030 smart city right which is what uh, you know they're really after, and we can take a cue from from Yatzu right, the co-founder and chairman of Animoca Brands, or uh, what he said uh, in in the press. He said, Neom could become the first region to harness the transformative power of blockchain fully." We've always seen the growth of Web3 as the rise of a new meta nation. So this is this is a big hint, right? Uh, without going into too much details that we can reveal, but this could mean you know various things, right? One is of course better physical and metaverse, better, metaverse uh, synchronization, right? Building a digital tweet of buildings, testing concepts like maybe theme parks, you know, different buildings, different concepts on the metaverse, and then getting the the response from that, and then actually building an uh, actual building, an actual you know theme park, uh, in the real world, right? So there is some sort of digital synchronization, uh, there between physical and metaverse, things like maybe tokenization of certain assets, right? And they could tokenize you know certain uh you know areas. And say this is for investments for external investors that creates liquidity that creates you know a marketplace or even things like land and house uh, housing registers right on the blockchain. We've seen such use cases for where you put you know who owns this particular land or this particular house or this particular apartment on the blockchain. So there's no you know um, argument who actually legally owns it. So there are many things, but I would say that you now I encourage anyone who is listening here who is very interested in Web three and blockchain technologies in smart cities to watch this space very very closely because there's going to be more announcements coming soon.
0: I want to dive into another segue which is the Apple Vision Pro. I think it's probably it's like building the most iPhone-like VR goggle glasses. To me actually it disrupts not just the AR VR space but actually it, if you really look into the demos you almost don't need a TV anymore. Mm. Or with with uh with the Vision Pro. So, one. How do you think Apple's foray into the VR and AR space will change the metaverse market?
1: Yeah, I I think this is literally one of the game changers, right? With pun intended or no pun intended, because I think Vision Pro, uh, Apple's Vision Pro is all about you know using eye tracking from my perspective and removing the need for you know controllers, right? So for the first few versions of uh you know these uh, headsets, which you know I I own a Meta Quest. I think, yeah, and mm. and I've been looking at this space for some time. Uh, I think the the cumbersomeness of using that that controller really, you know, limits the kind of interaction that you can have. So just like how Apple, I think, mostly removes the need for stylus pens in smartphones with their, you know, Apple iPhone. I think the same they're trying to do here for you know this uh, you know goggles itself. So having superior eye tracking, and you know, like intention, like when you point like a mouse towards a particular item and having that item be selected or interacting with the item, I think that's really the game changer. I think there'll be a lot more innovative apps and games that we haven't even thought about that will suddenly become more useful because of this natural way of of interaction. And I think
0: this is literally where uh, this will go. Mm. So where do you think the AR and VR market will go from there? I I think like most most technologies,
1: it will always start out with gaming and entertainment markets first for mass adoption of consumers. Simply because that's the easiest way for to attract someone to buy those headsets, right? I mean short of giving those headsets away for free to consumers, which they probably will never do because it, it will incur a huge loss. Um I think gaming, entertainment, like what you said, you know, big screens, a movie theater, uh you know, a thousand-inch uh you know movie theater at your home, these are things that people will resonate with, right? I mean, can you imagine sitting on a sofa, uh, you know, watching Netflix in a thousand-inch uh, you know, home theater without buying a 1,000-inch <laughs> projection mm-hmm. theater, uh, TV. These this are the kind of use cases that will attract, you know, obviously the mass adoption for consumers. But from a corporate perspective, I think this is, I mean, I think it's less clear, but I think one of the areas uh, that that I would like to see is actually the virtual human conference calls, right? So like the other party, like for example, I and you now, right? Where we see each other on the screen. But I can, if I can see you, you know, with in real life, like you look like literally across the table from me. I think this could be one of the you know first widely used use cases uh in on top of you know industrial training that's already happening, right? Because there's a lot of use cases where you can put on a headset, you can you know do you know overlays of how you can train in, in industrial uh you know use cases. But I think having you know, a person looking at their body languages across the table is something that we still cannot replicate uh, now with current technology.
0: It is almost without doubt now that the Securities Exchange Commission is going to approve the Bitcoin ETF starting with BlackRock and the rest and eventually conversion of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is the GBTC, to a spot ETF uh, due to the recent loss of the lawsuit. So that means institutional investors are coming to crypto. I think to me, there's some interesting interplay here, right? What does that mean for the crypto ecosystem as a balance between decentralization and other financial innovations in the space itself? I mean, now we have centralized investors coming into the decentralized space, which is the irony, obviously. Yes, so
1: so it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think there will always be two markets that will coexist, right? So number one, the first market will you know want to stay Anonymous people who want to stay anonymous, they will refuse KYC. They will refuse regulation. They will use, uh, you know, Bitcoin, crypto as, as a way to generate wealth, uh, maybe exchange wealth, move wealth, uh and then they will refuse, you know, all sorts of, uh regulations and and KYC of this. Uh, and then of course on the other side, crypto will finally be accepted as an alternative asset class, right, by institutional investors and corporates, which we are very excited about because this means that you legitimize, you know, an area where. There wasn't much regulation, there wasn't much you know ways to, to play. And everyone says, hey, this is you know so, it's scammish, right? Or this is something that we don't understand, we can't touch because there's no regulation around it. So for the for the second part, I think this is what we are very excited about. And because these innovations will, will accelerate innovations, both sides, right? Uh we think they will become very symbiotic with each other. So there will be you know some. Uh, you know, privacy-retaining um, uh, technologies that will come up for the consumer side that will be adopted by you know the institutional side and vice versa, right? How the institution actually you know better get better uh, technologies to do payments cross-border. This will be then adopted by by the consumers too. So we think that it's really symbiotic for both.
0: I said this in two thousand fourteen. Crypto, the cryptocurrency market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. So. I want to ask you that: What are the chances for other cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum and Solana to be the next wave of the ETFs, or how would that change the investment landscape?
1: Yeah, I I I think that that Ethereum has a has a good chance because obviously number one, BlackRock has already put it you know put in a filing on this, uh, and then obviously the others will, will will follow, uh, especially the major ones. Uh, I think the other major layer ones might also follow. I don't know about Solana itself uh, or others, right? Uh, but I think this is definitely the trend. I think the next one will definitely be or might have chance, high chance to be Ethereum. Uh, and what this means is that it will be more web- mass awareness, right? Mass adoption of Web3 technologies and crypto. And that's really the dream, right? Of all investors in this space that there is mass adoption because everyone has been, you know, kind of saying, oh, you know, this Web3 thing is so small, it's so niche. You know, what's the market size, you know? I I don't get this, right? And then if this happens, which we think it will happen, then you know there'll be mass adoption.
0: But I think there's still a lot of major skeptics. Uh, but it's good the tourist VCs have left now, you know, I'm still the same Web3 injury investors as before. My street crack probably have gone up. I think yours also saw increase as well. So maybe curious to ask then, how do you envision regulatory changes? that's shaping the future of cryptocurrency, ETFs, and investor strategies. I mean, there's the emergence of Dubai, London, Hong Kong this year, in addition to Singapore, as crypto hubs enabling this type of innovation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is one of the, the, the megatrends that we talked about, right, which is regulation and, and better security, because um, you know, we, we believe that this is the way that the, the world should work, Um, especially if the governments are, are going to be involved, as well as the big corporates are involved. You need some sort of framework to, to protect not just the, uh, you know, the the consumers, but also the, the corporates that are part of this. So that's one of the reasons why we've been pushing for the last, I would say, 18 months or so, uh, our portfolios to actually get licenses and to be regulated because we think this is really the future, right? So for example, one of our portfolios, we said, okay, maybe Singapore, maybe Hong Kong is is not as, uh, you know, clear at this moment. So why don't you go to Dubai and do it, right? And you know, now that in Dubai. They're getting uh, you know, these uh, licenses anytime now. So these are areas where we believe that once you have that trust and that regulation in place,
0: basically, that's where institutions will come in. And that's the regulatory advantage, of course. So I know you and I don't have crystal balls. And if we do, we are probably very rich. So my traditional closing question, what does GREAT look like in the AI and Web3 space in 2024?
1: I'm an optimist by nature, so I would say great will look like you know a, a great time for investors and startups alike because you know of new innovations that come out both in AI, Generous AI as well as Web three. Um, you know there are certain signs. Of course, it's no guarantee. Like what you say, we don't have crystal balls. But there are certain signs that the market is turning. You know the crypto winter is toying maybe a little bit. Uh, and and we'll see that you know as more money comes in, more institutional money come in, these innovations will accelerate. It will come into our daily lives. So it's not things that, you know, will, will happen in, in the fringe. There'll be more innovations by the banks, there'll be more innovations by the by the countries, there'll be more push for the metaverse. We think, you know, grid will look like you know mass adoption in 2024.
0: I think there's a good optimistic note to end twenty twenty-three and moving into twenty twenty-four. So in closing, two quick questions. First one, any recommendations which have inspired your life.
1: Yeah, I I think I think life is all about growth. It's all about learning. It's about learning about yourself and, and how you how you relate to the rest of the world. Uh, for myself, you know, I, I've gone through this journey of AI as well as now uh in the web3 and, and blockchain. I'm amazed by the speed of uh, you know of innovation that's happening in this space. Every day, you know, I, I look forward to learning something new. Uh maybe the also both the the interesting and, and the and the downside of it, but also the you know the upside of it. How can you know these technologies help me in my life? Uh, both as a, as a as a father as well as a, uh, as a son as well as as an investor, right? Uh, how does it shape the you know the future world for our children, right? I think this is another big big area of of thought for uh, for myself. So these innovations actually do drive me, and and the speed of innovation, uh, and excitement of these new things, uh, you know, is something that you know gets me up and bit uh, gets me out in the morning very very quickly and and very very happy and charged
0: for the day. Thank you so much for that inspiration. How can my audience find you?
1: Yeah, so so the, the audience can can find me two ways. One is of course go to LinkedIn, and search for Kelly Chu, K E L L Y C H O O. I'm probably the first first uh, hit that is a that is a guy. So try not to add uh, any Kelly Cho's there, ladies there. Um, yeah, in, in based in Singapore. uh so that's one way you can uh you know add me and, and say hi. Uh, another way is of course to uh, drop me an email. Um, you know my email is Kelly K E L L Y
0: dot. C-H-O-O, true, at trueglobalventures.com. Mm, totally, you can subscribe this podcast to YouTube and everywhere else, every podcast platform. And of course, sign up for our newsletter and we look forward to see you. And of course, let's talk again in the next quarter or so and we can have this conversation again. Yep, great, great. Thanks, thanks so
1: much, Mani, for this.